Well, this morning, we are privileged to be able to have Pastor Bob Weeb, who is going to be sharing the, the message with us, and i also like to welcome him to come to the front, and I'd also just like to uh, acknowledge to uh, the Wolf family that you are still in, in our thoughts and prayers, and we're glad that you could be here uh, together with us this morning. We pray that the Holy Spirit would be giving you his comfort and peace and strength in this time as you continue to go through this time of loss, so our thoughts and prayers are with you. We are, so, we are so thankful to be able to have the Holy Spirit of God to come and empower uh, not only our lives, but that when we pray, we trust that it's His Spirit that is at work and that He is working even now. And so we pray that He would continue to work through you, brother, that He would speak through His Word, and may God bless you. Thank you. Well, it's been a, a number of years since I have spoken in this church. Although we've visited here a few times this year, uh, once when I had the privilege of baptizing my grandson, Eric, and uh, you'll all remember that. Uh, he almost stayed underwater because he's a pretty big guy, and we needed two, two of us pastors to pull him up. And then a few weeks we were here for our uh, great-granddaughters as they were dedicated. Uh, I know we, we're not old enough to be great-grandparents, but, uh, but uh, my wife is actually... Not nearly as old as she looks. I don't know if that came out right or not, but, but uh, I, I think I said that wrong, and so I, I, I wanted you to know that, that I, I just made the first mistake this morning, and I'm probably going to make a few more before the, uh, uh, before the, uh, the service is over. So thank you for the invitation, Danny, and uh, of uh, being able to come here and speak this morning. When you're a guest speaker in a church, there's always this, this tension that goes on within you is to say, what, what, are, you, what are you going to speak about that, that people will need to hear? Maybe they want to hear. But something that's not confrontational and those kinds of things. And so um, this morning I've decided that I will speak on the topic of you can't tell a book by its cover. Some years ago, there was a single mom, her name was Joanne, and uh, she had a little girl, and her little girl and Joanne existed on Social Security. She was at the rock bottom. For seven years, Joanne had worked on a project, and she often thought during those seven years, you know, I think I'm just going to give it up, because it's really not worth putting any more effort into. Finally, seven years later... She finished her project, and she took this manuscript to 12 different publishers, and every one of the publishers rejected it out of hand. However, publisher number 13 finally said, okay, we're going to give you $4,000 and just go away. Joanne was desperate. In her own spirit, she thought that her project was worth a lot more than $4,000, but she took the $4,000, and today, after selling more than 400 million copies of her books, which, which are the Harry Potter series, and you know, and I know her as J.K. Rowling, she is now richer than the Queen of England. Joanne came out of nowhere and surprised everyone. She waited as any author would wait for that first book to be published. The publishers had absolutely no confidence at all, so they only published 
1,000 copies of her first book. 500 of them went to various libraries across the United States. Those original manuscripts today are worth over $42,000 a piece. But no one actually even expected that they'd be checked out of the library. So you look at that story and you say it's impossible to understand and to know what those, why those first 12 publishers rejected her manuscript. Maybe they didn't even read it. Maybe they saw the outside cover and they made a judgment call on what the inside was like. If it doesn't look good on the outside, it really can't be any good on the inside either, can it? We don't know why they rejected it. It's surprising, but maybe not so much because the publishers probably received hundreds if not thousands of manuscripts by unknown writers who just wanted to publish something. And most of them, frankly, probably weren't any good. And Joanne was really no different, right? But they were wrong. You see, the the, the publishers made the mistake because they did not take a look and they did not realize the potential that was in front of them. Whatever it was that they saw... They saw it in error. They made a judgment call, and it cost them literally millions and millions of dollars. I look at that, and I say, wow, that cost them, that cost them a bundle. It cost them a lot of fame. But, but then I look at my own life, and I look at the lives of followers of Jesus around me, and I say, we do that every day when we encounter people. We do it at home. We do it in our marketplaces. We do it in our schools. We do it in our communities, in our neighborhoods. And even in our own family, when we have a family member who doesn't quite measure up to how we think they should measure up, we make a judgment call. We look at an outward appearance, and we look at the decisions that people are making, and we only see what we see right now. We don't stop long enough to look on the inside. Our instinct, my instinct, is to look at the data that I see in front of me and then I make a judgment call based on my own preconceived ideas of how it should be. And I don't stop long enough often as a follower of Jesus to look at people and see what they might be able to become. We don't really intend to do that, really. I don't think we we wake up in the morning and we say to ourselves, we're going to make all sorts of judgment calls on people today. We We don't wake up with that intent, but we do it. We make judgment calls thinking that we know all the facts. As a police officer many years ago, I learned how dangerous that was for me to begin to make judgment calls Because often I was confronted with dozens and dozens of facts all at the same time. And I I learned as a young officer that it was dangerous to come to a conclusion too quickly. Because when I did, I would develop tunnel vision. And the tunnel vision made me not look at all the facts. And sometimes the real perpetrators would get away. But I still do it. I still do. We all do it. You meet a guy by the name of Bob, and he's pudgy, and he's old, and he's bald, and you automatically make a judgment call. You automatically make a judgment call. But have you stopped to really get to know who that person is? 
See, we look at a person who's just lost his or her job, and, and my first conclusion is, well, they must be a bad employee. They can't get along with their boss or their fellow employees. I hear about a couple who goes for marriage counseling or goes to a marriage retreat, and my first reaction is their marriage must be in trouble. Instead of looking at that and saying, maybe, maybe they want their marriage to be even better than it already is. I look at a guy who drives an expensive truck with really loud mufflers, and I, th- I, I think as he's roaring by me, and I think about, well, like, who does he think or who does she think they are? That guy who doesn't have a job, he probably doesn't have a job because he's lazy. Or the girl dresses like she does, and I, and you fill in the blanks. Or the guy has pants down lower than, than I would like them to be, and they've got chains and piercings all over him, and he must be that kind of a person, and you fill in the blanks. This person drinks too much, or this person doesn't drink, or that person shops at that store, or they go, they vote for that particular person political party, or this girl has these kinds of male tendencies, and this guy has some real feminine characteristics, and we draw conclusions by what we see. We make assumptions about people, and we make judgments about who they are and what they're like based on the immediate data that I have in front of me. And so often, we're wrong. So often, I'm wrong. I look at a person who goes to church, and I think, well, they go to that church. <laughs> that can't be great. <laughs> or, I, or I look at a person who maybe doesn't go to church at all, and automatically, as a follower of Jesus and as a pastor, I want to make a conclusion that they may not even be followers of Jesus. I make those judgment calls. I vividly remember some 52 years ago when I became a police officer. And I had just got out of training, and I was on my first detachment, and I was attending a course, and a guy who was a a polygraph operator looked at me after the class, well, actually it was sort of the class was just over, but a bunch of people, and he pointed at me and said, you know what, you're never ever going to make it in the RCMP. And I kind of thought, like, why would that be? I'm I'm just starting out, like, give give me a break. And he said, you know why? He says, you're far too timid, far too shy, and far too reserved. And I know that some of you who know me are th- think that he's talking about my twin brother, but I don't have one. <laughs> I used to be shy and introverted. You see, the people that said that didn't see my potential. Interestingly enough, with that fellow, I ran into him some years ago after I had retired from the force and I was the chaplain for the RCMP. And I kind of reminded him of that. And he said, yeah, we all make judgment calls on people, don't we? Yeah. We do. You're too tall. You're too short. You're not educated enough. You just don't have what it takes. And I make assumptions and I make judgment calls based on what I see and, and, and the behavior of people. Because I, as you, have preconceived ideas of what others should be like. In some churches, a pastor should, would never show up dressed the way I'm dressed without a suit jacket because it's not acceptable. We make judgment calls on what pastors should do or shouldn't do. We make judgment calls on what teachers should do or shouldn't do or how they should dress. And it's important, but it doesn't make the person. And we make those judgment calls based on the biases that we have all developed. Sure, it's possible that within the next person exists another J.K. Rowling, but probably not, right? Probably not. 
because I don't think they have what it takes. And it happens in church. It really happens in church a lot. You see, it probably doesn't surprise you that that kind of thing, those kind of judgments calls have been going on since recorded history began. People throughout all of history, throughout Scripture, have made judgment calls based on what they saw. They made judgment calls on who they think God loved and who they think God didn't love. We do that, church, don't we? Like, it's really, really hard for me to really think that God loves everybody equally. Because you know what? There's something within me that says, God loves me a lot more because I'm clean-shaven than if you have long, scraggly hair, right? Or if you've got piercings all over. But the truth of the matter is that God doesn't make those judgment calls. We do. We do. And that's also very true about the person that we're going to talk about in the next few minutes that we have left. Joshua chapter 2, verse 2 sets the stage. And you know the story, but it's the story of the children of Israel. They've, they've once again arrived at the border of the land of Canaan, and they're on the other side of the Jordan River. And Joshua is going to play it smart. These, these million or so people have just come out of, well, 40 years ago, they came out of, out of Egypt after having been slaves for some 400 years. And every day they've had funerals. And if you're at all interested in, in statistics, over the 40 years that they wandered, they probably had 35 funerals a day, seven days a week. But they've, ali- they've arrived at the land of Canaan, a, a land that God promised to them. This is the place that God said you're going to settle down and this is going to be your home. While there were people living in the land, some really bad dudes living in that land. I mean, these people were nasty people. They they participated in all sorts of idol worship. Some of them even sacrificed their children to their gods. They did some horrible, horrible things. And they were corrupted to the core. So Joshua decides, the leader of Israel, the leaders of the Israelites, decides that he's going to send out some spies. But this time he only sends out two. Remember the last time that the 12 didn't work out well for them? So now he's going to send out two. And the the spies go in, and so he sends them into the city of Jericho. And while they're there, the king finds out that there's some spies in there, and so he sends them, he sends the police force to the home of Rahab. Here's what it says. But someone told the king of Jericho, some Israelites have come here today to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out these men who have come into your house, for they have come to spy out the land. Rahab had hidden the two men, but she replied, yes, the men were here earlier, but I didn't know where they came from. I'm sorry, but I didn't know where they were from. They left the town at dusk as the gates were about to close. I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you can probably catch them. And I want to say right now, you know what? Some of us are thinking, okay, well, Rahab lied, didn't she? Well, that's another sermon. (laughs) But Rahab hides the spies and outsmarts the king's men and helps these two people escape. And I look at that and I said, I would say, Rahab, You are an amazing, awesome woman. You are an amazing, awesome woman. She's on God's side. I don't know how she got to be on God's side, but she was. She just helped God's chosen people, and without her actions, these two spies would have been captured and no doubt executed. She's a hero. 
which seems a little bit weird, quite frankly, because there were really no women heroes in there, recognized women heroes in those days. If, if they had done a survey, if Angus Reed had done a survey of all the men of Israel, and to find out one or two people who were going to be heroes, you can bet your bottom dollar that a woman would not have been selected. You see, they were at the bottom of the list. And yet Rahab was a hero. She saved the day. She made a difference. And you know what? You would think to yourself, well, you know what? If that's where the story ended, it's a good ending. But the story in God's economy always gets better. So let's back up just one verse that I didn't read and read Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp of Akasia Grove. He instructed them, scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men set out and came to the house of a church lady. No, she came, they came to the house of a prostitute and stayed there. Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab was, in today's vernacular, a sex trade worker. You, you might look at that and say, Bob, I know the story. Get on with it. But think about that for a moment. She is not the kind of person whom you would expect to become a hero in God's story, would you? If women generally were at the bottom of the list, prostitutes were lower than that, and the only other person that was lower than that was a tax collector. Yet God chose Rahab for a critical, crucial role in his overall plan. She was pivotal, pivotal in the success of this reconnaissance or spy mission. See, God saw past the cover. God saw past who she was. God saw potential. And God believed in her. And God sent her a text message that said this, I be I you. I believe in you. See, that's what God does. That's what God does. And if the story ended there, you would say, wow, that's, that's an awesome story. But the story gets even better. Israel right wipes out the whole city of Jericho. And then Joshua, in Joshua chapter 6, verse 22, commands his soldiers to go to the house of the prostitute and get her and her family out. God is not finished with Rahab. And God is not ashamed of calling her what she was at the time. And if you take a look at Scripture and you go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, it's the, 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 the hall of fame. When God refers, when the writer refers to Rahab, he still refers to her as Rahab the prostitute. But the story keeps getting better. And church, every single time when we allow God to work in our lives, the story just keeps getting better and better. Rahab the prostitute ends up marrying one of the Israelites' men by a guy by the name of Salmon. And it turns out to be a, just a real good old-fashioned love story that just keeps getting better and better. 1,500 years later, we read the story of Jesus the Messiah. 
And the first story written about Jesus the Messiah is written by a guy whose occupation was considered to be even lower than that of a prostitute, Matthew the tax collector. And in that story, the first chapter of the book of Matthew, it's probably a chapter in the Bible that many of us have just skipped over because it's got all sorts of long, hard-to-pronounce names. But if you take a look at those names, they're really the ancestors in the attic of Jesus Christ. I've skipped over those a number of times in my earlier days, but, but now I read them all. Because Matthew writes those names with a very important person in mind. He is writing to prove that Jesus Christ came from God and that his ancestry was part of the fulfillment of prophecy declared hundreds of years before. And so the family tree that you find in Matthew chapter 1 is laying out the lineage of, of Jesus. And if you read that list of names, there's some pretty big names in there. There's names like Abraham and King David, Solomon. Let's just read part of the list. I'll read the ones that I can actually pronounce. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the guy who married Rahab. Salmon was the father of Boaz. That name starts to ring a bell, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, a Moabite woman. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. It's the beginning of the family tree of Jesus Christ. And Rahab the prostitute is a great-great-grandmother of King David. God included a prostitute in the family line of Jesus Christ. And Matthew wanted you and me to understand that. Why? Because I think Matthew is saying to us, people, don't get so caught up with who people are and what they look like. Don't get caught up with that. Don't make those judgment calls because you never know when God, what God has in mind for them. I look at that and I say to myself, this is not an oversight. This is not, this is not a mistake. This is not an accident. God does not look at people the way you and I look at people. God is not interested in what we look like. God is interested in our hearts. And years after the story of Rahab takes place in 1 Samuel chapter 16, you know that story. The prophet Samuel is going to the town of Bethlehem to anoint a new king. Because God has decided that Saul is no more qualified to be his king. And you know the story. All of Jesse's sons are asked to pray in front of him, except for one. And Samuel reaches for the, the horn of anointing oil as Eliab, the oldest, the tallest, the best looking. And he says, surely this must be the king. And God speaks to him, right? And he says, remember, Samuel, God does not look at outward appearance. He looks at the heart. Man looks at outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God saw something in the heart of Rahab, and she was much more than she appeared to be. God sees the potential in each one of us in this church and in our community. God does not need, nor does he look for perfect people. Because if he was looking for a perfect person, I can guarantee you, I would not be standing here today. I wouldn't be. 
No, God uses broken people. God uses people who have had life's experiences. God uses people who are sinful yet forgiven. God uses people who are not influential, and he uses people who are influential. God uses powerless people, but God also uses powerful people. He uses all sorts of people to accomplish whatever it is he wants to accomplish. All through Scripture, God has used a variety of people that I would have never chosen. I would have never chosen just a whole raft of people that he chose. I still wouldn't choose most of the people that God chooses to work. And I'm quite certain none of us would. Because, but God does. But when you think about it, when you think of the story of Rahab, that's exactly the kind of people God uses. I often forget that. I don't know why. Maybe because God can do his best work in the lives of people who are broken people. In the, in the lives of people who've had life's experiences. See, we never know what will be the next chapter of someone's life or the final chapter of their life. We don't know what God is going to do. We don't know what God is up to. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. Because the way I treat people, the way I make judgment calls on people, what I say to them, what I say about them, the looks I give them, and ultimately the way I treat them affects how those people will relate to God. Because you and I, as followers of Jesus, represent God on this earth. It doesn't affect the way God looks at people, and I'm really glad about that. But it affects the way we look at people. It's a hard habit to break. It really is. I still tend to do that. And I struggle with that on a personal basis because it seems to come naturally to me to make judgment calls on people. To look at someone and make assumptions that usually are wrong. To come to the conclusions that based on what I see right in front of me, and usually those conclusions are wrong. Let me give you something that's helped me in my journey, when I think about making a judgment call on somebody, when I'm tempted to make that quick call, that quick judgment call on someone, something that has helped me is to try to believe the best in that person. You see, this may blow your mind, kind of like it blew my mind some years back, but we don't have to make judgment calls on people. Like, there's nothing in this book that tells us that, you know what, I'm authorizing you to, to make judgment calls on people. No. You can look at a person, even a person who may be doing something that you don't agree with. They may look some way the way you don't think they should look. And you can believe the best of them. Of them. You can choose to believe that there is more going on in them that you can see or that I can see. And that God has a plan for their life just like he has a plan for your life and mine. You see, we can choose to believe that their story is not yet finished. That God is still writing out their story. Believe the best. And remember this. Always remember that the people on whom I'm about to pass judgment are made in the image of God. 
regardless of their color, regardless of how they look, just like you and I are. But let me say this. There is a 100% chance that if I continue to believe the best in people, that they will let me down sometimes. They really will. There's a 100% chance that if you believe the best about someone, they're going to fail in your eyes and in my eyes. And you're going to be tempted to say, why did I trust them? Why did I think the best of them? I knew they were going to turn out that way, right? We've all said those things. But resist the temptation to make that judgment call. Leave it up to God to write the rest of the story. You see, Jesus spent a whole night in prayer, and then in the morning he announced his running mates. The guys that were going to follow him for the next three years, we call them his disciples. And you know what? If you take a look at the history of most of those guys, I wouldn't have chosen them. I wouldn't have chosen Judas. I probably wouldn't have chosen Peter because like, he was a rough and tumble fisherman. I wouldn't have chosen his brother. I wouldn't have chosen Matthew. He's a tax collector. I wouldn't have chosen him. Who, who would choose a tax collector? See, the point is we never know. We never know what that person is like, where they've come from, the kinds of things they had to deal with. But we need to trust them to God because God knows more about those people than I do. So as you begin to wrap up this message, I want to give you a personal illustration of how God effectively convicted me about making quick judgment calls. Happened a number of years ago when Ann and I visited Riverwood Church, Community Church in, in Winnipeg. It's a great church, and we, I, I know the pastor from some years back, so we decided to go visit a couple of Sundays. I sat down in the chairs just before the service started, and a young woman and a guy, and he was carrying a little baby, walked and sat in front of us. The guy had more piercings than of a spaghetti strain. He had tattoos all over him. He wore a cap sideways. And I immediately began to make some judgment calls right there and then. I'm thinking, listen, you, you've got to be kidding me. Like, I don't know if that's your kid or not, but, but you know, you've got to be kidding me. Coming to church looking like that. Well, then, what we didn't know that Sunday, there was going to be a baby dedication and a baptism service. And so they called for the parents who were going to dedicate their kids, and, and this guy got up with this young woman, and they went up, and he's still wearing his hat sideways. And he's even got more piercings, because now I can see him from the front. And they dedicate this little baby and promised the people that they were going to raise that little child to the honor and glory of God, just like, just like Pastor Danny led the dedication here a couple Sundays back. Well, then it came time for the baptism, and all of a sudden I'm thinking, come on, look, if that's your child, then you know, maybe you should start setting an example, and this, these judgment calls are still rattling in my head. And then it came time for the baptism service. And this guy gets up again, and he's going to be baptized. And then he gives his testimony. 
And he, as he gives his testimony, my heart broke and I began to sob inside. Because this guy tells the story of being involved in drugs and crime and all sorts of stuff that you, can't, you and I, most of us, can't even imagine. And how he spent time in jail and in desperation. He was forced to attend Teen Challenge. And when he was at Teen Challenge, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And there he met this young woman. And then he says, you know, and pretty soon, in the next couple of months, I think it was, we're going to get married and we're going to have this, we're going we're to st- establish this family. And I had made all sorts of judgment calls on this guy. And my heart broke, church, because I began to realize that God had not had done a huge work in that young man's life. And God was continuing to do his work in his life. I also began to realize afresh and anew, what difference does it make how many piercings a person has? What difference does it make? How many tattoos? You know, it's, it's a personal preference, and I, I wouldn't go around like that, but what difference does it make? What difference does it make? What gives me the right to stand in judgment? You see, God wasn't finished with that young man yet, and he had come so far that I think in the, in, in the, in the few short years that since he had been through Teen Challenge and, and, and met this young woman, they had the baby, God had taken him so far. And here I was, a leader, a pastor, making this kind of a judgment call and thinking to myself, man, I sure hope he never comes to my church. But I'm glad God convicted me because it, I realized that as a, as a group of followers of Jesus, as a church, we have something to offer people like that. But folks like that have far more to offer us. What we have to offer them is hope in the living Christ. What they have to offer us is tolerance and an acceptance of where God is taking them. And so what's the worst thing that can happen to us as followers of Jesus if we think the best of people? They can let us down, and they will. By failing to believe the best, we may well be missing an opportunity to help that person or have that person help us accomplish something for God that we never, ever thought was possible. So my question to myself again this morning and to you as a church is this. What would happen if all of us started believing the very best in people, all the people we rub shoulders with, the ones that don't talk like us, the ones, you know, we're actually pretty sanitized people, us people who go to church every Sunday. You know, we, we look nice. We dress nice. We, we, we look pretty good. But what would happen? What would happen if we allowed people, like the young man that I just described, influence our lives? If I believe the best in that person, if I believe that God was yet not finished with that person, just like he's not finished with me, If I believed and trusted that God was still at work, because God continues to write the chapters of the books of our stories. And the last chapter isn't written. 
until I no longer am on this earth. Would you please pray with me? Father God, thank you for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for that, that, that little video we saw that the children uh, were able to watch, that we all watched. Thank you for the, 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 the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that convicted me when I saw that young man dressed the way he was and looked the way he looked. Thank you for that. Thank you for how hard that was. But thank you for how, what that has taught me. And I pray that we will allow the Spirit of the living God to influence our lives as we go from this place today into the community that you've called us to serve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.